KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Rick Perlstein will talk about the future of the Republicans with Trump defeated. Rick's new book is Reaganland. And Ella Taylor will talk about the tabloid documentary Alan V. Farrow. But first, today's political update. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's an editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him tonight in our nation's capital at home. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, let's start with Biden's pandemic relief bill. I understand it's set to pass the House on Friday or Saturday. This is $1.9 trillion. It includes the $1,400 for Americans. It includes an extension of a $400 a week boost to federal unemployment benefits, uh, $350 billion for state and local governments, and what we've talked about many times, an increase in the federal minimum wage to $15 by 2025. And one of the most significant parts of Biden's bill, which we have never talked about, is federal aid for families with children. The United States has a terrible record on this compared to most other developed countries. We have more than 10 million children living in poverty in the wealthiest nation on earth. The Republican view is that you should not have children if you can't afford to raise them. What do most, most, <clears throat> what do most other wealthy countries do about this? Uh, what they do is they provide uh, payments to families with children, and that's virtually uh, every country in uh, the OECD, which is uh, an association of developed or even not quite developed uh, economies. Uh, I think we're at the bottom, uh, uh, just one rank higher than the lowest member, which is Turkey. Uh, but uh, they, uh, you know, essentially everyone else does this. And this is really uh, the kind of thing that uh, my old uh, associate Heather McGee, who was for years the president of Demos, talks about in her new book, whose name I do not have handy, uh, but arguing that the uh, racist uh, policies of the South, which didn't want any uh, public or social provision uh, because they didn't want anything going to uh, blacks, um, really also had the effect of completely screwing non-affluent whites. Uh, and, and, you know, this is uh, our family policy, which is largely non-existent, uh, and benefits for children uh, falls under this category of uh, a policy that every other equivalent or even nations we don't think are equivalent or somehow beneath us, every one of those nations has adopted, but we sadly have not. Well, Biden's idea is to call this pandemic relief. Um, what, what is his proposal? His proposal is to give virtually every family a $3,000 per child uh, a stipend, which they can uh, get in the form of a tax refund, uh, even if they don't pay taxes, um, as uh, a way to boost the economy uh, that has been obviously severely depressed by the pandemic. Now, it's, it's an excellent policy, but because it's in this particular bill, like everything else in the bill, except as you mentioned, the $15 minimum wage, uh, it's good for a year and then it's not. Uh, it, so it's sort of an opening gun under the theory that 
you know, if, if we do this for a year and it obviously has positive effects, uh, you know, it'd be easier to establish this on a permanent basis. Now, you said this is for virtually every family with children. Of course, Republicans say, why give money to people who have enough money? Uh, why not focus this where it's needed, on the poor? Well, uh, historically, Republicans don't support that kind of policy either. <laughs> It's true. Uh, and, uh, you know, there has been a, a different proposal introduced by, uh, by Mitt Romney, which, which sort of shows the fallacy of that logic, or at least the fallacy of believing it's what Republicans support. Because Romney's proposal, which isn't for a year, uh, and he should get credit for that, Uh, which is in equivalent dollar amounts, but it's partly funded by slashing other programs like food stamps that the, the poor need to uh, access. And so, uh, you know, uh, it's a uh, giveth and taketh away alternative. And, but even that is too progressive uh, for uh, other Republicans, none of whom has signed on to Romney's proposal, that none of none of his Republican Senate colleagues have signed on to Romney's proposal. So Romney's proposal, here I've got the details, $350 a month for every child who is younger than five, $250 a month for every child between the ages of six and 17. And in addition to that, new parents would collect a single $1,400 payment just before their child's birth. Uh, so this is monthly payments, and it would be a a permanent benefit. Uh, you say Biden considers his proposal uh, to be, I think you called it the opening gun. Uh, how is this supposed to work in the future? In well, Biden's it, only view? It, it only works in the future if uh, Congress then decides to continue this program or something like it on a permanent basis. In other words, it would take other legislation to do that. By the way, I should mention that Biden's proposal, like Romney's proposal, uh, would have the highest level of benefits for small children, and then it would grow smaller, the benefit would, as, as, the, kid get, as the kid gets older. Uh, but uh, Biden's is, is introduced sort of in the spirit of, gee, we're going to try this out for a year, it's obviously going to work, and that'll assure its passage. Whether it does or not, you know, given Republican opposition probably to this, is, is an open question. Uh, but it, the, the administration has one other shot at introducing a bill that uh, could pass under budget reconciliation. That will doubtless be the big infrastructure bill, which can contain other measures unrelated to infrastructure, so long as they have a fiscal impact on the government. And I think the thinking is to lump it into that. And there are two, Demo two Democratic senators, uh, Ohio's Sherrod Brown and Colorado's Michael Bennett, who have proposed uh, doing just that. And there's an equivalent proposal in the House from Connecticut's uh, Rosa DeLauro, who is a chair of, I think, the Appropriations Committee in the House. And this would be for a permanent program? Yes. It's for a permanent program, and it's something this country badly needs, particularly because we have a just outrageous rate of uh, child poverty, uh, you know, sometimes approaching 20%, sometimes higher. Uh, children uh, are disproportionately born to the young. 
the young in America uh, disproportionately don't have a lot of money. Uh, some of them are in, in, in groups that are historically uh, basically kept out of the thriving parts of the economy. Uh, even uh, college graduates have seen their incomes decline in compared to their predecessors in, in earlier generations. And so it really addresses, I think, uh, a, a glaring need, which is the level of child poverty in the United States. I have a friend in Iowa who has um, an extended family that includes a lot of working class people who voted for Trump. He says, if this passes, this could be a game changer politically for the working class Trump supporters in his extended family. Uh, do you think that's true? I think it's one of the things that could be. I think by backing a series of universally accessible, applicable uh, programs uh, that Democrats have felt compelled to shy away from in recent decades, uh, yes, they, they tend to win support. And certainly the infrastructure proposal, the infrastructure part of the infrastructure proposal that Obama, Obama, that Biden will introduce in uh, as his next major proposal also addresses a lot of the uh, needs, uh, the deindustrialization to a certain degree of, of the Midwest. Yes, that can have an effect. Uh, you know, Medicare uh, is still an issue that Democrats uh, campaign on often successfully. Uh, and so, so was Social Security until even the Republicans decided they would shut up about repealing it. Uh, when, when tangible benefits are offered by Democrats and uh, they can be claimed across the board, it is the kind of thing that tends to win Democrats' political support, often across the, much of the political spectrum. Not all of it, but much of it. A new topic, something you've written about recently, What's happening with the proposals for a 9-11 type commission to investigate the insurrection on January 6th? Well, I, I never was uh, all that optimistic that this would get off the ground because there's really no Republican support for investigating the key issue, which is the role of the president in inciting such a matter. Uh, just uh, as we speak, it's, it's now Wednesday and just today, Mitch McConnell has come out against the uh, Pelosi version of the proposal. It was Speaker Nancy Pelosi who initiated the idea. Uh, the Republicans are insisting on equal partisan representation, which certainly made sense at the time of 9-11. Doesn't quite make sense at a time when Republicans have rallied to support of the person who incited the riot. But then there are all kinds of issues on which there are disagreements. Pelosi wanted uh, the chair of the committee to have subpoena power. McConnell today said uh, uh, subpoena power has to be approved by every member of the commission, including all the Republicans. So I, I think increasingly this is going to uh, fall victim to the kind of Republican resistance to the exposure of facts which the commission would threaten to do if it were a real fact-finding commission. I, I saw a horrifying uh, poll, uh, a poll of Trump voters that asked them how they would describe what happened 
in the assault on the Capitol on January 6th, and they were given a menu where they could pick the description they agreed with. 58% of Trump voters called it, quote, mostly an Antifa-inspired attack that only involved a few Trump supporters, close quote. I guess if you had a January 6th commission, it would the Republicans would want to take up that argument. They probably would, notwithstanding that every single arrest that's been made has been of a Trump supporter. Uh, they haven't, uh, the government has yet to find, any of the investigative agencies has yet to find a single Antifa participant or insider of the insurrection. And so, you know, that's one of those inconvenient facts, uh, which nonetheless uh, spreads among Republicans through social media and the wacko right-wing news outlets. Let's let's talk about uh, a little more about what's going on within the Republican Party. We've been enthusiastically following what looked like a split, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell denouncing Trump as obviously the inciting the insurrection. Of course, it's not unusual for political parties to be divided over ideology or tactics or political issues. The Republicans have had different factions for a while now. Is there anything different about this divide? Well, yes, it, it isn't the result of all the kinds of divides we are used to political parties having. Uh, political parties split because they have fundamental differences on policy, which may be uh, a function of, of region, like what happened to the Whigs, uh, the, who went out of business when uh, the northern anti-slave and the southern pro-slavery wings uh, split apart. It, it's happened to the Republicans in 1912 when Theodore Roosevelt, who had been a Republican president, wanted to push into a, a more progressive realm. Uh, there was a, a, a split there. Parties are divided all the time by economic interests, by ideology, uh, by all kinds of things. The interesting thing at this point is the Republican Party isn't really divided on any of those issues. It's a pretty uniformly conservative party, increasingly nationalist. Um, the only point of division seems to be, are you loyal to Donald Trump and his version of the facts, which is a fictitious version of the facts? Uh, this is a new basis for division. Um, and it's, it's you know, it, it really kind of highlights the degree to which the Republicans now resemble a classic cult more than they resemble a political party. This is not why political parties divide. It's why cults divide. And one last thing, uh, we've talked a lot here over the weeks about increasing the minimum wage. What is the current outlook for what might come out of the Senate in a few months? Uh, well, it's, it'll be shorter than a few months uh, because the Senate plans to move ahead right away with the House bill. So I would think this is going to come before the Senate uh, very shortly. Well, later this week, either Thursday night or Friday, we're going to hear from the Senate parliamentarian as to whether the $15 minimum wage fits under the rather convoluted and obscure criteria for being passed under the budget reconciliation process. If she says it, it can be, then I'm pretty sure the Democrats will uh, put it up. And we'll see where the two uh, Democratic uh, dissenters on this, Joe Manchin, if they're willing to 
but against the whole thing, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema are, uh, you know, going to view their opposition to a $15 minimum wage as grounds for voting the whole thing down. It is possible that uh, the Biden administration could administer, you know, negotiate. It is possible that the Biden administration can negotiate some kind of compromise on this. Uh, that could be enacting uh, a version of this so that the $15 comes a year or two later. Uh, they might say, okay, for now we'll go for $13 and return to this, uh, or the whole thing could be taken out and the Democrats would have to bring it back again in, in some other form. My, my guess is they would try to bring it back in that second bu budget recon reconciliation bill, which includes the infrastructure. But it's not really clear uh, what the bottom lines of the two uh, renegade Democrats, Manchin and Cinema, really is, and uh, if they can be cajoled back. It's, it's worth noting that Manchin is playing an interesting kind of game. Uh, he had said he had hesitations about confirming Deb Haaland, the New Mexico member of Congress and that would be the first Native American to head the Interior Department, who's a nominee for Interior Secretary. Today, he said, no, she's okay. So I think Manchin envisions himself as in play and perhaps Kristen Cinema does too. And if they are in play, uh, it remains to be seen what play will win their votes. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the Republicans after the second impeachment. How divided are they and how much weaker as a result? For comment and analysis, we turn to Rick Perlstein. Of course, he's the author of the new book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn 1976 to 1980. It's the best political book of the year, in my opinion. And it's the final volume of the series that began with his classic Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. Rick is the former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice and a former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared in The New York Times, Newsweek, and The Nation. We reached him today at home in Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. Well, 43 Republican senators voted Trump was not guilty of inciting the insurrection on January 6th. They had a chance to banish him, but 43 out of 50 chose to keep him. Of course, last November, he did get 74 million votes. That's more than any other candidate in American history, with one exception, Joe Biden. <laughs> But, but his final approval rating on January 20th was 29%. That's the lowest for any president in history. And there are some powerful forces trying to dump him now, notably Mitch McConnell. Here's the problem they face. Among 2020 Trump voters, according to a good recent poll, 66% say they're more supporters of Trump than of the Republican Party. 
40% of Trump voters said the Republicans care more about helping people make more money than helping people lead decent lives. And more than half, 54%, they would, said they would definitely support Trump in 2024 if he ran again. The Republicans have been divided before, but not like this. One of the cunning things about how Donald Trump has kind of set up this whole dynamic for his supporters is, you know, the least bit of disloyalty, you know, turns you into uh, a conspirator against him. So uh, it gives them very little wiggle room. I mean, the needle that Mitch McConnell managed to thread where he um, said Trump was guilty, but he wasn't guilty, basically. <laughs> You know, worthy of Jacques Derrida, right? Uh, oh, oh boy. Uh, I have no idea, uh, you know, whether that could possibly work. They're up against a very ironclad set of institutional facts, which is like, you know, basically it's impossible to organize outside the two-party system. You know, I mean, it's, it's the, the challenge of getting on a, a ballot if you're not a Republican or the Democrat is so prohibitive the libertarians started doing well in arizona you know in the 1990s so they just changed the law and you know made you have to have like you know whatever 10 times more signatures to get on the ballot right i saw another statistic that's mind-blowing a very complex one the number of people saying they would like to vote for a third party or that the two parties are not serving them is the highest since gallup has been measuring it's something like 62 percent wow but wow. I don't necessarily think it's the most dramatic thing that could happen to the Republican Party, because when you think about it, you know, all through the 60s, all through the 70s, the, the Republicans basically were outvoted uh, in the House of Representatives by, you know, almost a, 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 a ratio of two to one. You know, that's the way it was between 1977 and 1981 in the House, you know, it was basically... I think 60 Democratic senators. So, you know, the Republicans have been in the wilderness before. And, you know, putting on my, you know, historian hat who, you know, hates to prognosticate about the death of anything, no one would have guessed, you know, between, you know, 1974 and 1980 that the guy who would bring the Republican Party out of the wilderness from Watergate was the one guy who refused to ever say that Nixon did anything wrong in Watergate. So I am not making any predictions. This is a set of circumstances that I don't see any precedent for. I think it's really um, one of those many, many bizarre, paradoxical concomitants of our two-party system in which basically the two parties are just kind of locked in. And, uh, you know, in any other democracy on the planet, right? You'd, you'd get another party coming to the fore, you know, you would have to form some sort of coalition government, but you know, the Republicans and the Democrats are, you know, the only choices that are practical because of those structural constraints. Well, uh, some, some of our friends say this is, this is a good thing for us as long as the Trumpers and the party leadership remain strong and the party remains committed to racism and hatred of immigrants. It will continue to drive away suburban voters and in independents and college educated voters. And this will help the Democrats get a bigger majority. And uh, 
Others of our friends say it would be a lot better for America if the Republican Party would just get rid of Trump, if we could de-Trumpify America. What what do you say? Well, there's this there. Uh, one of the tweets I, I did a couple of weeks ago that got like this explosion of support quoted Nancy Pelosi saying we need a strong Republican Party. And young people were just completely baffled by this. You know, <laughs> why would you want a strong party that's, you know, full of racists and is cruel and sadistic? And it comes from this, you know, we're, we're, we're old men, right? Uh, it comes from this kind of neo-Madisonian pluralist theory that if one party gets too strong, you know, the other party will be tempted to tyranny. I mean, the Democratic Party is like, I can't, like the, the least tyrannical political <laughs> party in the history of political parties. You know, they're so non-tyrannical that they had to make, make up a conspiracy theory that they ate babies in order to, you know, get people to be frightened of them, right? But there is this idea brought in the land. I'm kind of fascinated by this idea as I kind of thought it through that it's almost like the Democratic Party is almost kind of like contains all these neo-Madisonian factions in itself and is so, you know, um, diverse, really. I mean, it has, you know, a center and even a right in a lot of ways, but when it comes to mansion and cinema, they seem to be diving for that center-right vacuum and it's got a left and it's got, you know, a liberal wing um, that, you know, the, the nation would be pretty fine with Democrats fighting it all out among themselves. You know, do we want to, you know, balance the budget by, you know, having entitlement reform or do we want to, you know, come up with entitlements, right? That's a pretty good debate, right? And it's all the way within the, the Democratic Party. So why do we need a Republican Party, right? Well, um, the alternative is to try to uh, imagine what what a post-Trump Republican Party could look like. Um, and I remember, you I'm sure you remember, the Republican post-mortem after right. uh, Mitt Romney lost to Biden in 2012, which concluded that the only way for the Republicans to regain a majority was to bring in people of color, especially Latinos, because- And it was absolutely right. They're more conservative and they're more business oriented and they had to recruit young people. And this would be a low tax, pro-business, small government party. And they even had the candidate who personified all this, Marco Rubio. Marco, John, to be fair here, the, the, a lot of the Proud Boys are in fact young and some of them are Hispanic. <laughs> well, of course, and Marco was happy to be the new Republican who was, you know, not a racist, pro-immigration reform and so on. But you remember what happened to him him in the 2016 primaries. Trump just destroyed him. Little Marco. Remember yeah. little Marco? And remember, now, yeah. now, he, now he's a true believer. Now he's a true believer. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the people who wrote that postmortem were absolutely correct. If the Republican Party wanted a majority coalition, that's what they something like what they would have to have done. Uh, but they went a different way, which is basically to try to win without ever having a majority. There's, in fact, a counter majoritarian reactionary tradition in America that really goes back to the founding of the Constitution, right? The South gets to keep slavery, you know, no matter how many people they have, you know, no matter how strong their economy is, no matter how much power they have vis-a-vis -vis the North. And that's basically uh, the idea that, you know, the reactionary portion of the country should rule by right, whatever their numbers, has been an article of faith first in the South, but then, you know, among reactionaries all over the country, once the Republicans became a conservative party, 
And we've had a dynamic that whenever this minority coalition is not able to achieve what it wants using kind of the minoritarian parts of the Constitution, it resorts to violence, right? That's what we saw in the Civil War. That's what we saw in Reconstruction. That's what we saw in the segregation of South. And that's what we saw in the Capitol on January 6th. That gets us very deep into the most basic constitutional questions of, you know, why we have a government. I mean, the Constitution is basically a machine to arrive at power arrangements without force. So, you know, whatever the kind of party politics, it's it's a very frightening situation. And sort of the middle ground for the Republicans has been, if they're going to remain the white party, is vote suppression, prevent right. people of color from voting. And that's getting harder and harder to do. But it's and it's been a project that goes back many decades, as you yourself uh, have, have written. And they're still at it. You know, uh, Trump tried to sabotage the census. And the response, once again, to the 2020 election was, you know, vote suppression bills all over the country. And, uh, you know, so they're doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on the most reactionary, non-democratic parts of their program. And uh, that's frightening, too, because these are going to create diminishing returns, especially as, you know, Joe Biden, who, you know, turns out to, like, have buried in the recesses of his, you know, 80-year-old brain, you know, the formula for how Democrats, you know, achieve their supermajorities after the New Deal, which is basically give people stuff, govern compassionately and well, when someone doesn't want to help you give the people infrastructure and medicine <laughs> and, and money, then you tell them to, you know, co-urinate um, up a rope and, uh, you know, spends, you know, tax, 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 spend, 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 elect, elect, elect. It's the formula. And Joe Biden's rediscovered it. You know, he's kind of like somehow kind of turned off the, you know, austerity part of his brain. It's been kind of the dominant note of presidential politics through Carter, through Clinton, through Obama. And he's, you know, going back to Roosevelt. <laughs> so it's going to be even harder for the Republicans to achieve not only a majority, which seems inconceivable, but some kind of governing minority. And especially since in the most recent election, the turnout was unprecedented. It was yeah. incredible turnout, I think partly because of mail voting. Mail voting is the way to get millions of more people to vote. And lo and behold, you know, my sister is from Oregon points out that they've been doing it just fine for decades. You know, there's no there's no reason based in any kind of empirical logic that the whole country shouldn't have mail-in voting. Some of us civic, you know, kind of fetishists like the, the election day, but maybe they can have a nice little theme park where we can go vote on, you know, Tuesday. So really there's no, there's no visible path that the Republicans get back to being a, a, a majority party. But one of the, you know, themes of all these books I've written is whenever the Democrats win, you know, it seems like the Republican party are rocked on their heels forever. And they always managed to come back. I mean, it only took two years in 1964 because this new reactionary issue suddenly came before, which was basically, you know, open housing, you know, in the North, you know, and suddenly it turned out as, as George Wallace put it in 1964, oh my God, the whole country is Southern. So I know, you know, it's like, you know, they're maybe one Reichstag fire away from weaponizing demagogic reaction among masses of the population, but I don't really see it. 74 million people voted for Trump, but only a few thousand went yep. to the rally on January 6th. And, and most of the people who went to the rally didn't storm the Capitol. That was only 800 people. So 
still like, you know, half of Republicans or more, you know, believe that uh, Trump actually won the election. So they can rob you with a fountain pen or they can rob you with a gun. Right. I mean, the fountain <laughs> pen wing of the Republican reaction is if you add up all the Republicans in the House and all the Republicans in the Senate who tried in some way, cast a vote in some way not to certify the election, it's a majority of members of Congress. Right. <laughs> you can't say this just, you know, a couple thousand people, you know. Um, wearing, you know, like uh, stocking caps and in on January 6th, this is a party that operationally, you know, agrees with the basically the military aims of that violent operation. And they're pursuing it, you know, with vote suppression. They're pursuing it uh, by um, censuring all the members of the party who dare criticize Trump. They're even on the verge of you know, censor, censoring, you know, Mitch McConnell. It seems like, you know, Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell are about to have some sort of, uh, I don't know, they're going to like have uh, Derringers at 10 paces. I don't know. <laughs> but Mitt Romney has introduced a child support, uh, child, you know, allowance bill that's more generous than Joe Biden's. So very intriguing. <laughs> this is a moment, you know, of chaos and chaos throws up possibilities that were not foreseen. And of course, the great agent of chaos is, is looming out there and his children are out there and they're ready to go gung-ho for whatever 22, 2022, 2024 plans they have. You know? Yeah, well, so there's there's sort of the, the big picture is that the Republicans have no path to becoming a majority party, but then there's, as you say, 2022. And uh, the Republicans have a pretty good chance of recapturing the House. Uh, on the one hand, their chances are hopeless. On the other hand, they may well take over the House in two years. There's our beloved Constitution, right? And the gerrymandering, that's, uh, let's, let's not forget that's part of the minor minoritarian pattern. 2010, you know, uh, after that census, uh, the Republicans spent a very small amount of money brilliantly, you know, finding just the state legislative seats they needed in order to, you know, get kind of majorities in, in states where they had Republican majorities and governors, they were able to create situations where you could have, you know, like in Wisconsin, you know, 56% of the vote for Democratic legislative candidates, but uh, a congressional delegation that was still majority Republican, same as Pennsylvania. American politics is becoming very distorted, uh, uh, very contorted, but, you know, uh, the the pattern, right? The historical pattern is that in out years, uh, the president's party loses seats. But you know, I mean, has any pattern held true? You know, for the last you know two or three years, you know, it's snowing in Dallas, right? They're gonna have <laughs> you know, dogs. Dogs are dogs are dogs are you know mating with cats. You know, I mean, anything's possible in twenty twenty one. Anything is possible. Rick Perlstein's book, Reaganland, was the best political book of 2020. Rick, thanks for talking with us today. Not about Los Angeles, John. <laughs> Cheers. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left.
Now it's time to talk again about TV and the age of the virus. And so we turn to Ella Taylor, longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, there's an HBO documentary that just opened that's getting a lot of attention. Alan V. Farrow. It's a four-part series documenting the accusations of sexual abuse against Woody Allen involving Dylan, his then seven-year-old daughter, with Mia Farrow. Some say it's the nail in the coffin of Woody Allen. What do you think? Like we needed to hear more about this case. <laughs> um, but in fact, we do. And I, my concern is going to be not so much with the um, allegedly explosive new evidence offered by this. It's actually a mini-series um, of which episode one is available. I've seen all four episodes on HBO Max. Uh, it's directed by uh, Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering. Kirby is a local filmmaker, and the two of them together also made uh, The Hunting Ground, which was a, a documentary about campus sexual assault. The two of them, at least on, on social issues, tend to practice a kind of tabloid journalism that is like a sort of courtroom drama with only the prosecution present. <laughs> and that is very much the case here. It's not as lurid as The Hunting Ground. In fact, it carries a soundtrack of somber music as if to say we're very serious and committed here. But it might as well be wearing a placard that says, we believe Mia. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, I just want to say up front that I carry no water for either Mia or Woody Allen. Um, this seems to be a very complicated family, which I'll get to in a minute. But uh, the supposedly explosive new evidence is one that Mia Farrow gave a number of home uh, her own home movies in which she's being incredibly nice to Dylan Farrow as her daughter Dylan is at the center of this whole scandal when she's little. And uh, this is presented as evidence of her innocence here. I mean, Farrow herself has been accused of abusive behavior towards her 11 children. But, you know, as a parent, as well as as a critic, I would say that few of us would actually make public home movies which showed us being horrible to our kids. <laughs> Good point. Uh, this is not exactly evidence so much as it is, you know, propaganda uh, from Mia, which is, is presented as such. There is also uh, Woody's fairly unsavory unwillingness to be either a full parent or a full partner to Mia. He certainly doesn't come over well here. But uh, there is something new here, which is that he said that he didn't want any part in, in Mia Farrow's adop adoption of kids, mostly with uh, quite serious disabilities. But he would be willing to be a parent to, and I quote, a little blonde girl. Oh, dear. Now, as awful as that is, it is equally awful that she agreed to do that and adopted a little blonde girl. Yes. So there is all sorts of stuff going on here. Um, there are strategically chosen excerpts from 
his new uh, memoir, newish memoir, uh, from the audio book version. So he's heard um, making all kinds of uh, obnoxious and tendentious statements. And then there is the matter, oh, there's also some court records uh, detailing uh, how unjust it was that the court reached the conclusion that, in fact, it looked as though Dylan had been coached into stories of abuse by Woody Allen. Those I can't comment on, <laughs> but there is, uh, of course, the the obligatory mention of his films, you know, his evident adoration for dewy young things who are either barely over the age of consent or not over the age of, <laughs> of consent. And uh, that's a fairly toxic um, aspect of his films, but it is not proof that he is a predator. It is proof that he is kind of a salacious artist, I guess, is the way uh, you would put it. And I would also say that I wish I had a dollar for every male filmmaker I could mention who, uh, you know, places his camera adoringly on dewy young things and nobody has called them predators. <laughs> so that's not exactly proof either. So in my view, they 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 only make their case. I mean, Woody Allen refused. Apparently, they reached out for comment from Woody Allen. Of course, he refused the comment. I don't really blame him because it was very obvious what, you know, the, the attack that they were going to take here and that they wanted him to incriminate himself. However, if you pull back from the movie... What you do see almost inadvertently, and I don't think that that's what the filmmakers intended because their sympathies lie, lie uh, with Pharaoh very, very clearly. If you pull back, you see a pretty toxic family. It's a very sordid story whose children are forced by both the adult figures, I think, but certainly by Mia, to take sides in public against the other putative parent. Uh, and that's a very sad and sordid um, tale in which Dylan Farrow, who otherwise comes across as a very personable and attractive young woman, has become so committed to that narrative that it seems to have taken over her life. And you could say the same for Ronan Farrow, formerly named Satchel by, by Woody Allen, that he's very much on his, on his mother's side. And there is also, a, a, not in the movie, a memoir by Moses Farrow, which I believe you can talk about, I think perhaps you've read, in which he actually switches sides that he had formerly supported his mother and then uh, claims perhaps correctly that she coerced him that, that he was co that she had coerced him to speak up for her and he switches sides and places his full support behind Woody Allen whom he definitely regards as his father my takeaway, my only takeaway from this series, which I'm not sure ever needed to happen, really, because I think that probably the problem is partly us, because I think we need to leave this family alone to sort itself out, and that we should be content to remain in confusion and uncertainty, which is exactly where we should be. I couldn't agree more. You know, watching the first hour, the prosecution is very effective and you say, oh, this is the end of Woody. But then I found just through the courtesies of Google, a 2018 
brief statement by Moses, the son closest in age to Dylan, called A Son Speaks Out. And his statement is very convincing uh, on the other side, that Mia coerced, trained all the kids to, to rehearse them on telling stories that exonerated her about lots of other things, too. So I end up with you, that this is a very disturbed, disturbing, and horrible story. Can I just add a little Please. extra comment, if I may? Which is that on the surface, it's very commendable that Mia Farrow adopted all these children, um, most of them from overseas and some of them with very serious disabilities. But as a parent of one, you know, which is hard enough work as it is um, with kids who don't, with a child who didn't have a, a disability, I find it very difficult to believe that she could be so serene and wonderful all the time with all 11. There seems, there does seem to be a genuine pathology here. And I've seen a number of other documentaries about other people, um, very often single parents. I mean, how anyone could single parent 11 kids with these kinds of of uh, handicaps is completely um, beyond me. I guess Moses does reveal that uh, Mia Farrow herself had a very unhappy childhood. Her father was an alcoholic and a womanizer. Her mother, who was Maureen O'Sullivan, was a very uh, busy actress and the marriage was not happy and there was a great deal of conflict. So we do have to feel great pity for her in some respects. But she is wealthy enough to be able to do all of this and and uh, in many cases to be above criticism. So if we want to turn away from the tabloid story of Alan V. Farrell, can you recommend something else? Yes, it's a tabloid soap opera. Okay. <laughs> it's actually very lovely um, called It's a Sin, which is also playing on HBO uh, Max and uh, is also a mini series, uh, which is set in 1980s Britain at the beginning of the AIDS crisis. And it spans the whole decade of the 1980s. It's directed by Russell Davies, who is the creator of Queer as Folk and is also the man who brought back Doctor Who from oblivion. So he has a, an illustrious pedigree, I guess, of uh, within the sort of pop uh, interpretation. This is a very exuberant movie about a bunch of young people, almost all of them gay men. Uh, there is one woman who is played rather beautifully by Lydia West, who's kind of the mother hen of them all, and it's really strange because she seems to have no sexuality of, of her own, which is a, definitely a shortcoming of this. But they live together in the same apartment and they're very much in party mode. As, you know, more and more gay people come out of the, came out of the closet, there was definitely a kind of roaring 20s, a roaring 80s aspect to the way they lived their lives. At the centre of them is uh, Ollie Alexander, who's this very cocky, freshly out young man and an aspiring actor like a few of the others. And he is especially hard partier. Uh, and the, the, the series has a very exuberant, funny, kind of sweet-natured tone until tragedy begins to strike, uh, which means that the first of the... Neil Patrick Harris has a, a small uh, role as 
mentor to uh, a sweet young Welsh lad who's gay, who's working for a Savile Row um, tailor. And uh, the first signs of malignancy of the coming plague come when Neil Patrick Harris's partner is hospitalized and then he is hospitalized and, and dies. Uh, but they, the group tends to party on. I mean, there's lots of denial, as there, there would be. So that what you see in the rest of the series is a kind of continuing exuberance. The movie has a soundtrack of musical numbers from the 1980s, including the Pet Shop Boys anthem that um, became an anthem for, uh, for that period, uh, Kate Bush and um, uh, various others. That continues, but along with some rather adroitly managed shifts in tone as the numbers increase and it begins to infiltrate this group itself. So there's a defiant spirit, an exuberant spirit, and a tragic spirit because these people are very young and they don't really know how to handle their, their normal lives, let alone uh, what to do when a plague strikes. There are several wonderful performances. One is Stephen Fry. <laughs> who plays a closeted conservative MP who exploits a member of this group who is played in his debut by um, Omari Douglas. Uh, he's a very flamboyant gay guy and he's a natural actor. <laughs> um, he's never done uh, any kind of film or TV work beforehand. And his character is exploited by Stephen Fry's character for publicity until uh, this young Nigerian guy who's been thrown out by his Nigerian Christian family begins to stick up for himself and take some rather creative retaliatory uh, action. There is also a terrific performance from Keely Hawes. Uh, she's a very well-known British actress who plays Ollie Alexander's obnoxious mother, but uh, she's not given any redeeming qualities because this is... A difficult experience to go through when your beloved son uh, uh, is not only gay, which you didn't know, but also very ill. It's a it's a really enjoyable, soapy series that also manages to capture both the anguish, anguish and the exuberance of the period. This series reminded me in its in its joyful spirit of a really terrific um, little pop movie called Pride, which came out in 2007 and didn't get nearly as much uh, American attention as it deserved. It's still playing on Amazon and it also deals with the 1980s, but it deals with a real life case around the miners' strike, which was a paralyzing strike um, in the 1980s. And something I didn't know, which is that a small group of gays partnered with a Welsh mining village to resist the, the uh, Margaret Thatcher's trying to put an end to the mining industry. And this is about as likely, unlikely two groups as it's possible to be and uh, there's some wonderful performances there notably by Bill Nye who plays a, a closeted gay Welshman there and Imelda Staunton as his sister who has known all along that her brother is gay but has you know been too kind 
to uh, to mention it to him, which was not very kind because he's much happier once he comes out of the closet. It's a real life incident. It really happened, and it's directed with such joie de vivre that uh, I really highly recommend it. Uh, you can watch it on Amazon. Um, it's really a very, very delightful film. And I just wanted to quickly mention that the film Minari, a wonderful uh, film by, uh, by Lee Isaac Chung, um, about his own experience of his Korean-American family moving from Arkansas to, um, to the Ozarks, in order to start a, a new life. It's a very charming, beautifully written movie. Um, hasn't, you know, got the attention of the Oscars in the way that it should have done. And this week it opens on just about every VOD um, that you can imagine. Um, that's am among them Amazon, Apple TV, Voodoo and uh, and others. So I really recommend that, not least because I think we need to be paying to Asian attention to Asian films, which are still you can count on the fingers of one tiny hand. Uh, but also because in our state there have been some shameful attacks and gr totally gratuitous attacks on Asian people in the in the San Francisco. Um, area and uh, I think we can honor the victims of those also by watching this film which deserves watching in its own right. So we've talked about Alan V. Farrow. We've recommended It's a Sin, the drama series on HBO Max and also Pride on Amazon Prime and Minari everywhere on VOD. Ella Taylor is our TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. KPFK's general manager is Aniel Zuberi Fields. Thanks as always to Rai Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music